I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a little while, although I do feel like I probably think about how long it's been far longer than all of you think about how long it's been since I last released a podcast. (laughs) Me like feeling so apologetic about not releasing many podcasts in the past two months feels sort of like self-important in a way that's kind of funny. Um, But I'm glad to be back. Uh, It has been a slow season for me in releasing the podcast. I've definitely been going through a bit of a transformation and metamorphosis myself. And I was thinking about how every other time in my life that I've gone through something like that, that either I didn't really have like a forward facing project or like way that I was sort of creatively expressing to the public Or if I did in these sort of more extreme periods of transformation and evolution that I normally stopped those projects and started something new. I feel like the last time I was in that sort of a phase was five or so years ago after my divorce and I sort of walked away from everything that I was doing, um, which at the time was having a health and wellness blog and doing food photography. Um, And I definitely walked away from all of that in order to start this podcast. So it was interesting sort of going through that kind of a process, not nearly as extreme, but sort of feeling into the inner world, the underworld, feeling self-reflective and quiet and sort of existing in the space of nighttime psychology and wondering, do I still want to have this project? Um, and even if I do, I still don't really feel like I know what I'm saying, or maybe I need to reevaluate things. And thankfully I do think that, uh, I definitely still want to have this project and still want to do this podcast. As I announced in the last episode, though, I have initiated quite a number of changes. One of those big changes is that I decided to get rid of my Patreon. Um, Patreon is a place where... Uh, listeners of the show donated some money if they had it, and then in exchange got access to different perks that I offered. So we had a book club and workshops, and I made playlists, um, and we had a Discord server. We have a Discord server. And that felt really good for a while until it started to feel like I was charging money to have people gain access to this community. (laughs) Um, I think when I started the Patreon, I thought, 
I don't want to have ads on the show. There's no way for me to make money on this project other than ads or donations. And so great, if people have the means and want to donate, that's perfect. And the way that Patreon is set up is that you can add things to like give your supporters, which at first felt innocent and great. Um, but what I realized was I'm not really comfortable charging money for the perks. I'm totally fine with accepting donations, but I don't want to put these sort of community activities behind a paywall. And unfortunately, Patreon does not offer um, an option for like a free subscription. Substack, however, does. So I have shifted all of my stuff over to Substack. I'm going to be sending out articles. Um, I just sent out one on uh, Eris and Aphrodite, the myth, uh, which I'll talk more about in a second. But I'm going to be sending out a lot of writing. I'm going to be reinstating the book club. The Discord server is now free and open to everybody. So if you've been wanting to join it and get to know people in the community, we have almost like 200 people in there now. Um, you can now access it for free. So I'll put a link to join in the episode description. The links always expire. I think it's a week. So if the link doesn't work, just reach out to me via email or on Instagram and I will send you a new fresh link for you to use and join us there. But anyone who donates and anyone who doesn't donate gets access to the same things. At least for now, that's what feels good to me. If you have the means to donate and you do want to support this podcast financially, I really greatly appreciate it. And I have always really appreciated those donations. Um, but I know that times are tough and I know not everyone has maybe sometimes even five bucks to spare a month. And I want as many of you to be a part of this as possible and to meet each other as possible because it's absolutely the thing that gives me the most joy in creating this project and makes me really happy to see all of you connect in a world where sometimes it's really difficult to find and connect with like-minded people. Um, yeah, I'm not going to talk too much more about that because I did, I think, go on and on about it in the last episode. Um, today's episode is with Lisa, who's one of three hosts of the podcast This Jungian Life. I did have all three of them on it's probably, I don't know, a year or maybe over a year, two years. I don't know, really know what time is. Um, one of the most downloaded episodes I've ever done. I love these three. It's uh, the three of them. It's so nice to talk to them and I highly recommend their podcast. Lisa has a book that she wrote called Motherhood. And so I wanted to have her on the show uh, specifically to talk about that. This conversation was recorded quite a while ago when we were still in Thailand. So you're going to hear lots of um, exotic birds in the background of this. I recorded it on a roof of a bungalow um, on a remote island in Thailand. We are now in a very different environment on the Mediterranean in Turkey. Um, but it's interesting. I listened back to this conversation yesterday and I didn't really realize how much of the content of this conversation I feel like um, is very similar to what I've been thinking about over the past month or two months. Um, we talk about motherhood, yes, as in having children. Uh, this is really what her book is about, but we talk about motherhood more broadly and sort of the, its parallel to creativity overall and the kind of messiness and death that is required in order to birth something, whether that's a person or a project or a new identity. And this is really what the piece I wrote about Eris and Aphrodite is all about too, that I posted on Substack. It's a project 
or a piece of writing that I really expected to post like a month ago. Um, and it took a lot longer than I expected, but I'm really glad to have spent all of this time really thinking it and feeling into it and interpreting it in a way that felt good and felt, um, really sort of just similar to what I've been thinking about and what I feel like all of us have been thinking about a lot recently. And Lisa says something really interesting in our conversation about stories and mythology because her book is built um, in stories as well. So she takes a lot of fairy tales and uh, mythological stories uh, related to motherhood and then sort of interprets them and talks about them. And this is definitely what the piece I just released on Substack is about. It's absolutely the basis of all of the work that we do in the Lunar Circle, which is my introduction to astrology class. But really, that's a terrible way to describe it because it's much more a class about mythology and about archetypal psychology. Um, and it's very difficult sometimes to explain what my lunar circle is about. And so when you hear this conversation with Lisa or you read my piece on Substack, I think you'll have a much better idea of what it is that I'm actually doing and the experience that we actually have in the lunar circle. Um, and Lisa says this thing about how stories are a warehouse of psychic patterns um, and they help us find language for something that's difficult to language, which I thought was such an accurate and beautiful way to describe how I feel about stories as well. I feel like when I learned astrology, really what it was was a language. It was, you know, what people don't understand is they they hear about these different signs and these sort of characteristics that are associated with the signs and they think it's sort of random and arbitrary. But really, when we think about, let's say, the sign of Leo, um, and we think, oh, okay, Leo, so uh, self-centeredness and being performative and maybe a little bit narcissistic and playful or childlike, well, where did those characteristics come from and why are they associated with the sign of Leo? Well, the reason is because the sign of Leo is actually not based on random characteristics, but the story of Hercules. And within the story of Hercules are themes related to being special and performative and a little bit narcissistic um, and what it means to be attention seeking. And so we take these stories and we sort of boil them down to these different traits, which of course the process of boiling them down like that is an inherently subject subjective endeavor, right? Because I can read a story, you can read a story, a hundred other people can read a story and they can all interpret it in a different way. But unfortunately, in um, the process of trying to popul po popularize astrology, it's taken what is incredibly complex and nuanced and boiled it down to something that's not just boring, but sort of inaccurate in its simplicity. Um, and so if we can take all of that away, this is what we do in the lunar, lunar circle. This is what Lisa does in her book. Instead of talking about traits, let's just tell a story. And when we tell a story, we can put ourselves within the story. And by doing that, we can sort of understand ourselves in a way that kind of transcends language in a way. It um, transcends a lot of the sort of judgments or misunderstandings that we have about ourselves or about others. 
It's very difficult to describe if it's not something you've done. I know some of you read um, Women Who Run With The Wolves with me during our book club, and I think that book does the same, right? It tells these stories and then interprets the stories instead of just talking about women or talking about mothers or talking about different ways of existing psychologically, uh, we can just tell a story instead. So I'm grateful to have had this conversation with Lisa. It clearly inspired me quite a bit uh, in my thought processes over the last month. Again, if you'd like to read the piece that I'm talking about, uh, about Eris and Aphrodite, you can subscribe for free or for a small donation if you so desire on Substack. The link is Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. You can subscribe there. I'm going to be sending out lots of other pieces of writing, newsletters, again, like I said, starting the book club up again, probably offering workshops at some point. Oh, and also if you do subscribe for a paid subscription to Substack, which is as low as five bucks a month, you get a $50 discount on the Lunar Circle, which is a good deal, especially if you just sign up for one month. I'm not going to check to see how long you've been a subscriber. So if you're a paid subscriber, you get a $50 discount on the Lunar Circle. If you are interested in the Lunar Circle, which again is a month-long workshop, um, teaching you about astrology and how to read charts, yes, but more so really giving you an opportunity to look at your own mythology and your own life and the stories you tell with your life and how those stories affect how you interact with yourself, how you interact with others, and also more broadly how we interact with the planet. Um, you can sign up for that. Registration is open now, anyakotz.com slash lunar circle. Uh, enrollment closes in two weeks, which is going to go by very quickly. I do offer a payment plan, and if you need an even more extended payment plan or you can't afford it or there's something else that's standing in the way of you taking it, um, I've made lots of compromises with people over the three or four times that I've taught this in the past. Um, obviously, it's a lot of work for me to do, so I need to charge money for it to some extent, but I'm always happy to work with people and their finances. I want as many people to be able to take this as possible. Um, so let me know. Send me an email, anyakots at gmail.com. I'm sure we can come up with something that works for both of us. And I'm not going to be offering it again for another year um, after doing it. These past few times, I realized that it really does only make the most sense to uh, do it to coincide with the Aries new moon. So the way that it works is that we meet for the course of one lunar cycle. And the moon goes through the sky one whole time, makes one full revolution through all of the different signs in the zodiac over the course of the cycle. But depending on the time of year, depends where the moon um, has the new moon, where the cycle begins. Aries is the first sign in the zodiac, and the zodiac is somewhat chronological. So it uh, makes a lot more sense to kind of experience it in order. I've started the lunar circle in Pisces once, which was the last sign of the zodiac, which actually worked okay, and then we move into Aries and keep going. The last time we started in Libra, which is halfway through, which is a little bit more complicated. It's always worked, but I do think it's a little bit easier, again, to start at the beginning and learn things in order. Um, and so as the moon moves through the sky and moves into these different signs, I teach about the different signs as the moon moves through them. Um, and so we're able to kind of 
slowly <laughs> learn about each sign because astrology can be incredibly overwhelming and complicated. Um, and so this way we're really e uh, able to kind of piecemeal it and learn about one sign at a time. And I teach about the stories, as I said, the mythology behind the signs. And I teach about, let's say, like two or three signs at a time. And those are the signs that the moon's going to move through over the course of that following week. And then everyone goes out in the world and just feels into it. It's an extremely experiential and energetic course. It's not about looking at the computer screen or reading a bunch of descriptions of things and memorizing things. It's about saying, okay, the moon is moving through Aries and I know because Anya gave me my chart that I have Mars in Aries or Venus in Aries or my sun in Aries. And as the moon moves through that sign and hits my own sun, what's happening in my world? Am I um, being really brave and courageous? Did I have an argument? Um, all of these things are archetypal qualities of Aries. And so we learn about the signs, yes, through my own presentations, but also then through your own experiences. And then you come into a group conversation and you discuss your experiences with other people in the course. And that way you can see how all of the other people experienced Aries. The point is to add to the complexity and the multivalence of the archetype instead of oversimplifying it. So that's the purpose of the course. Um, all of the lecture times are listed on the website on com slash lunar circle. Although you do not have to attend any of the lectures live. We have group discussions and then I'm also going to hold open office hours where you can come ask me questions directly. And those will be scattered um, to allow for people in lots of different time zones to participate. And those things won't be recorded, the discussions and the office hours. So those are the really interactive pieces. Those are really the only pieces you have to attend live. So if you look at the schedule and you're like, shit, I'm in a weird time zone or a time zone that doesn't work for that, or I'm busy and I have a job or I have kids, it's totally fine. As long as you watch the lectures within 24 hours, I post them right away. Um, you can get just as much out of the course. There's lots of people that don't attend live. So yeah, anyakots.com slash lunar circle. I'll be talking about it a bit more over the next two weeks. Enrollment closes on the 28th. And I'd love to have you and get to know you more and help you to tell a more inspiring and empowering story for your own life in language that speaks in meaning and in archetypes. And... Yeah, it's been really fun the past few times that I've taught it and I'm excited to gather with a new group of people. Uh, I think that's it for today. I am going to play you in with a song called Sun Arise by Phosphorescent, which felt applicable to my current mood. I've definitely been in a dark <laughs> nighttime underworld space for a while and finally feel like the sun is rising and that I'm able to kind of work my way back into the daytime. Excited to be recording podcasts, excited to be posting writing on Substack, um, just excited to be sort of back to I don't know, normal and regular. I don't really know if those things exist anymore, not in the past five years or so at least, um, but back to interacting with all of you and putting things out into the world. So Enjoy this song, enjoy this conversation with Lisa, and I will catch you on the other side. Sunrise. 
Lisa, who I am really excited to have back on the podcast. Um, for those of you that have been listening for a little bit, you may have heard her as a po- as a part of her this Jungian Life cohort, uh, which is an amazing podcast that so many of my listeners listen to as well. Um, so we have one third of uh, the podcast hosts here today uh, to talk about her book Motherhood, um, and yeah, I I have to say I. It was interesting when you said, I'll come on your podcast to talk about my book because um, I was definitely hesitant. And the reason I was hesitant is because I had a very difficult relationship with my mother, who Mm. um, Mm -hmm. I didn't speak to for a couple of years, but then we reconciled um, and have done quite a bit of work on our relationship. And she actually came on the podcast for the 100th episode and we spoke about all of this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, uh, so it's a big topic on the podcast. Uh, I've talked about the mother wound and, and, you know, lots of different experiences about that. Um, and also I don't plan on having children. So there was this interesting, Hmm. like, hesitance and reluctance that actually motivated me to have you on the show because I sort of like to follow (laughs) my reluctance and fear. Um, so I read your whole book in one day. Oh my yeah, gosh. I just committed. I really, I don't like having people on the show whose books I haven't read. So I, I really uh-huh. wanted to make sure that I actually read it. Um, and I was, it was amazing. And I felt, um, actually sort of really redeemed as a daughter, um, mm. and really relating to a lot of what you spoke about, um, through the lens of my own experience, uh, being the daughter of a mm. mother. So Thank you for suggesting it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, how how did you feel redeemed? Tell me tell me more about well, that. I'm going to interview you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I guess so. First of all, I'm an astrologer, so I'm and I work predominantly with mythology. So anything mm-hmm. really that involves story and narrative and myth is of interest to me, and I find really compelling. So. I was familiar with a lot of the stories that you used um, Mm -hmm. and uh, relate to a lot of the stories that you used, uh, both in my own life, um, maybe not as a mother, but as a woman. 
And mm-hmm. uh, also as a daughter, for example, in the Demeter and Persephone myth, I've always kind of sure. felt that my relationship with my mother was very well um, exemplified <laughs> through that story. Um, so I guess I felt like in you kind of speaking to mothers um, and using these stories as a way to make your point, of course, what you were talking about was mothers with children. And so the children are sort of also present in in the narrative mm-hmm. um and so i mm-hmm. guess i felt redeemed in the sense that i felt my story was also being told in a way oh, okay books. okay yeah. yeah i could i could see that mm-hmm. good yeah. um thought about that angle but good yeah. yeah so yeah definitely recommend for those who are not mothers for sure um, mm-hmm. I would love to talk to you a little bit more about, I, I try to impart to my listeners as much as possible, but I like doing it through different lenses, um, why you chose to use stories and mythology in your book. Obviously, as a Jungian analyst, you have access to all sorts of personal stories that you could have used exclusively. I mean, of course, you included those, um, but I'm interested as to why you decided to take that angle and felt that it was important or, or would be meaningful. Yeah. So why I used the fairy tales yeah. and the myths? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess there's a couple different ways I can answer that. First of all, I could say, well, I'm a Jungian and we're interested in archetypal material and this is archetypal material, but that in some way is not really a very good answer. Mm-hmm. The truth is that I've always loved fairy tales. I love fairy tales before I was interested in Jung. And uh, then when I did become interested in Jung, it's, you know, I had an even deeper appreciation for them because they really are um, sort of a storehouse of psychic patterns. And, and, you know, I mean, I could, I could talk a lot about this, but there's something about being able to name what we're going through to find language or something that we, that that's difficult to language that changes our relationship with that. So I, I think about when someone comes to see me in analysis and they're, they're having a, a, a problem of some kind, they're having a, a feeling, a whole issue, say, about something in their marriage with their partner. And they know they're very upset by it and they can maybe talk about it in generalities, but somehow they can't quite land on exactly what's going on. And so it might be that our whole session is them describing it to me and then me really digging deep and trying to find really precise, granular language Mm -hmm. to describe what's going on. And you know, if you've done that, because you say it back to the person and their whole body shifts and they go, yes, that's it. Right. And I think that that is like a huge part of what I do is just try to help people find language for that, which is just on the verge of being unformulatable. Like you can't formulate it. You can't find language for it. Once we can find language for something that's like been bothering us been sort of something's nagging at us, something's haunting us. Again, we may know it's generally like, I just feel really pissed off about this thing, but what exactly about that? There's research about this notion of emotional granularity, which says that the more precisely you can name your feelings, uh, the better your affect regulation is going to be. In other words, the better you can 
deal with those feelings. But I think it's, well, the way I think about it, it's even a little bit deeper than that. It's that once we can name something, we can have a different relationship with it. We can think about it. We can watch it. We can observe it. You can't really do that if you can't name it. Okay. So how does this relate to fairy tales? Well, you know, when you, when you find the just right words for, for something, I mean, I'm thinking about something I did today in session where this is what we did all day as a, you know, the, the entire hour I was trying to find the right language or something. And a lot of times you wind up uh, using metaphors or analogies to do it. That's, that's a way to get really specific on something. Well, fairy tales are like the storehouse of incredibly granular, specific, um, intricate, uh, uh, emotional patterns. Mm. So, you know, when, when someone comes in and they're talking about a certain experience and I think, Oh, it's like this fairy tale. And if it fits, you know, and it doesn't always fit. You can't always find a fairy tale. You certainly wouldn't want to go around forcing it and just telling your patients fairy tales for no reason. But when it fits, it's so powerful because it's like, well, first of all, you know, yes, that's right. That image captures what I'm going through. And that's amazing. And then also we kind of know what story we're in, right? which means we kind of know where it's going. And so that's really powerful too. So I love fairy tales. I find fairy tales really useful in terms of doing clinical work. I also just love them. I mean, they're beautiful. Yeah. And they're ancient. They're thousands of years old. So there's something enduring and really universal about them. And in terms of uh, choosing them for the book, I mean, fairy tales help me organize my thinking. They always have, uh, you know, as long as I've been doing this kind of work, it's like as soon as I can sort of name the fairy tale that I can think about it more clearly. But also it, it, you know, I wanted this book I knew how I wanted this book to read. I wanted it to be really engaging, really a pleasure to read. Like, like the, my favorite books are my favorite nonfiction books are books that really make me think I can really kind of feel my neurons firing while I'm reading them, but not in a difficult way, in a way where I feel engrossed in something Mm. and feel kind of transported and stories are the best way to bring someone along. So I wanted to make sure there were just lots of stories in the book. So there's fairy tales, but there's also clinical vignettes. Yeah. Because it's it's much easier to read a story than something just expository. Yeah, and I feel like it also kind of, I don't know, one makes it easier to relate to, but also kind of removes some of the blame or like maybe negative association. Like even if you tell a story about a client, another client could be like, oh no, no, that's not me. Or, you know, it's a modern story and it's too close, uh, but still not similar. Whereas these other stories, um, here's one of the really intense birds, um, are, they're kind of neutral in a way. And so we don't have the same amount of like guilt or shame about placing ourselves within it. That's a great point because these stories are so universal that, you know, if you've been um, feeling a murderous rage at your children and then you read this story about the the horned women that I have in one of the chapters, you're like, oh, I guess feeling murderous rage at your children has been around for a really long time. I guess it's not just yeah. me, you know? Yeah. It really, it really um, universalizes the experience. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about this concept of unlimited potential 
and how having children um, kind of grounds us within the reality of life. And I wanted you to kind of expand on that point. I think you said something too about, uh, there was a quote that I have here, letting go of freedom and embracing the ordinary fate or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I'd love for you to expand upon that, but then also maybe talk about, since I imagine there are a lot of young people who listen to my show who either don't have children or aren't planning on it. Are there other ways in life that this also occurs? Um, and why is kind of grounding into our like Saturnian reality an important exercise? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess l- let me st- start at the top of saying, of course there are other ways than having children. I mean, by the way, the first line of my book is I always knew I never wanted children. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's, that's a, a a perfectly normal place to be. And you, you might very well stay there and you might not. Um, but in any case, um, in terms of, uh, kind of grounding into Saturnian reality, I like that. Um, where to start? I, I mean, so I talk about this in, in relationship to a fairy tale, um, called the Selkie Bride. And it's a story about a, a farmer, a small farmer who happens upon three selkies, uh, beautiful naked women singing by the seaside, you know, just as one does. And he's stricken. He's, he falls in love with them. He wants one for his wife and he goes off and he learns how he can have one for his wife. And it involves, he has to steal one of their skins. So the next time that he sees them, he sneaks up very quietly and he grabs a skin. And two of them jump up, put their skins on and head back in the water and swim away. Selkies, I don't think I said this. Selkies are seals who can come on, on, on land and become women. So in, in the water, they appear as seals. And of course, that's really if you've ever sort of seen seals, they have these really incredibly like expressive human-like yeah. eyes. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, so he, there's one selkie woman, beautiful selkie woman, naked, standing on the beach, shivering because he has her skin. So he comes over and he puts his coat around her and he says, don't worry, I'm going to make a great husband. He takes her back and He's as good as his word and they have lots of kids. But in one version of the story that I read, it notes that her children never saw her smile. And then one day her youngest child came to her and said, you know, mother, why does father keep an old gray skin tucked behind a loose brick? And she, she leans down, she says, show me. So he takes her to uh, the skin. She reaches down, gives him a hug and a kiss, and then runs down to the water's edge and is not seen again. So I talk about this story. I mean, there's many different ways to read this story. And I found that readers of my book really resonate with it in one way or another. But it's kind of a failed initiation in one reading of the story because she doesn't really kind of stick on land. She doesn't really develop a firm sense of herself. She doesn't feel attached enough to her kids to stay. She's just ready to melt back into the watery ocean of unlimited potential. And, you know, we can, we can live that way. Uh, Jung referred to it as um, the puer or puella complex. Those are the Latin words for boy and girl, but we talk about it, I think more popularly and somewhat more evocatively as kind of a Peter Pan complex. Like you don't quite want to grow up. You don't, you don't want to have to admit that, 
uh, you're going to have to pick something. You're going to have to pick a place to live. You're going to have to pick a career. You're going to have to commit yourself to something. You're going to have to choose a particular version of your life. Otherwise, if you're, if you're sort of keeping all options open, uh, then you, you're sort of, um, you know, there's, there's a movie called high fidelity with John Cusack. Yeah. It's really exactly about yeah. this. It's a great movie. And he says at one point in the, in the movie, I, I think he says, I thought I was keeping all of my options open, but really I was just committing suicide little by little or something like that. I probably flubbed it, but it's this great moment where he's like talking to the camera. Anyway, um, that I think is true because as time goes by, if we don't pick a particular version of ourselves in our life, we're, we're forfeiting the possibility of bringing something uh, you, you know, into reality, sort of manifesting stuff in space and time. And, and I want to just clarify that I think it's entirely pro- appropriate to keep your options open, certainly all through your twenties. You know, I mean, when people start deciding, Hey, I'm going to get serious varies, but I don't think it's good to never have that period of time. So it is very much kind of a developmental process of like, well, I guess I need to start making choices. I need to figure out which door I'm going to walk through. And that will mean I won't walk through any of the others. Now, um, not everyone who has kids has managed to do that. Right. You know, some people have kids and never quite find a stable version of themselves. Yeah. And that can be really painful some people are like that already and the kids come along and it's not disruptive in that way. For some people, the moment of either choosing to have kids or coming to terms with the fact that you did have kids is an invitation to, as you said so beautifully, ground into Saturnian reality and kind of face inevitable limitation. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I because I'm an astrologer, this, the planetary like metaphors will come up. But I, I think, you know, for a lot of people, like their Saturn return at the end of their twenties, I mean, it can manifest in so many different ways, but I was always interested to hear that having children was one major way that it, that it did appear, um, and really forcing people to like get real with their lives, um, uh, kind of for better, for worse. And I liked your book so much because I felt like it, spoke a lot to the nuance of so many of these things and um Mm. yeah that like on the one hand it's not a great decision to sort of reluctantly have children or settle and have children before you're actually actually ready um because trying to kind of like rush that process or do it inauthentically can lead to a lot of issues but also if you are approaching it intentionally and of course even if you're not you can ultimately like make good of the situation and learn from it um but you know of course there are so many people that i think rightfully so are like i want to wait to have kids until i feel like i'm not going to resent them or something like that um and i think oh uh, good luck with yeah. that <laughs> High hopes. But I mean, right. I mean, it, 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 of course it, it makes sense to, to wait and there's never, and there's never a point at which, oh, okay, I'm ready. Everything's perfect. You know, it's at some point it is a leap into the void. Mm, Right. Yeah. Um, and this idea that sort of pops up, I think in multiple places in your book, um, 
you know, obviously we all were parented, so we were all children of someone. And, um, especially if we were daughters, I know I've spoken to my mom about this, that there are many ways in which she, in kind of processing and understanding how her mother raised her, decided to do the opposite thing. Um, and you told a story about, uh, an experience with your daughter making a new friend and sort of realized that you were like overcorrecting for your own experience through her. Um, and mm -hmm. I talk about this concept, uh, not in this context, or at least I haven't before, but that like in the process of correcting, we tend to overcorrect. Like we think the opposite mm -hmm. reaction is the solution. Um, so I'd love to hear mm -hmm. you talk about that because I feel like that must play out so frequently. And sometimes... I think that's a beautiful thing, right? That we have kids and do things differently, different than our parents did or heal some wounds. And, but at the same time, we can do this kind of overcorrecting. Um, and instead of working on whatever that issue was within our own lives, we kind of try to solve it through our offspring. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, the, the really inspiring thing is most people, many people, let's say, as far as I can tell, the people that come to see me are, are, parenting better than they were parented. I think we do, most of us try to do that, you know, and if we were lucky enough to have pretty good parents, we, we try to sort of keep the same high standard. Um, but, but we can all find things that we wish our parents had done differently. And so I, I think you're right. I think that we, we do tend to, um, sort of tell ourselves, you know, it, I'm, I'm going to do it differently. And I, I think you're, you're, you're leaning into something where it becomes sort of a fantasy, mm of, um, healing some old wound, you know, but, but, but the sort of the sort of like magical thinking, like if I, if I just don't do that with my child, right. you know, then, then I'll have sort of redeemed this past thing. But of course, you know, there, there isn't such a thing as perfect parenting. You're, you're going to wound your child in some way that you maybe didn't even realize you were going to wound mm -hmm. them just as you were wounded in some way that your mother probably never intended for you to be wounded. Right. So it, it, it belies a kind of fallacy of control. I think it's like, Oh, if I just tweak this one thing right. or maybe, maybe it's not a tweak. Maybe if I just do this, yeah. you know, and of course it's a noble goal to want to correct what our parents did badly. Yeah. Yeah. The control piece resonates so much for me. I think it's, uh, interesting how, you know, I think in many ways people will have children in order to control something they feel maybe out of control. Mm. And so they make this decision to be like, okay, well this, I can kind of more, you know, <laughs> naively think they can manage. Um, and then it interestingly becomes this thing they cannot. Uh, and yeah, I think this played out quite a bit in my life. And, um, I don't know, I kind of wanted you to expand on that concept. Like, what does that mean to kind of be shown through, uh, parenthood or motherhood that, you know, this is the last thing that we could possibly control and, and mm. how, I mean, probably like traumatic and overwhelming that must be when the intention to have the child in the first place had a lot to do with, trying to figure mm -hmm. out, you know, manage one's life and feel in control of their reality. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, if you're at all that type of person that feels like you need to be in control of things, then, you know, motherhood's going to give you, I think, a run for your money. And I, I, there's a whole chapter on that, actually. And I, do, I mean, listen, it's it's hard for all of us yeah. uh, that we feel that we can feel things feel so out of control. And I mean, in little ways and big ways, I mean, you, you can recognize that you can't actually make your three-year-old go to sleep. Right. You know, that's a, that's like, that's rough. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or then I think also the ways that, um, when we have kids and they're young, we also kind of lose, in, this is an interesting thing. We lose control of our ability to project the persona that we want to project to the mm. world because, uh, we, we might, um, I don't know, be very concerned about, you know, kind of coming across this kind of cool and, and yet our kid will, come running into the room, like, you know, our toddler will come running into the room saying like, mommy, mommy, I pooped in my pants or something. And it's like, well, that's not really cool. So it's sort of, sort of like the way that kids will sort of blow your cover, like whatever it is that you wanted to project, your kids are going to blow mm -hmm. that to, to pieces. And that continues as they get older because they don't obviously always reflect us the way we want to be reflected. Um, and, and, uh, and of course, you know, there's the, the little ways that we're not in control of them when they're little. And then there's the, just the kind of heart stopping fear when they become adolescents or young adults and they're doing perhaps very frightening things and we can't control that. So it is this, I think, beautiful lesson in a way of recognizing how little we can control things. And, uh, that is a difficult, difficult lesson yeah. to take on board, but it's absolutely essential really, if we're going to be, I think happy is, is just being able to kind of recognize the limitation in that regard. Yeah. Do you find that like it, as a young person, you know, who's living amidst this like into Instagram psychology world of, um, safe spaces and, you know, feeling that triggers are something to run away from instead of moving toward it, Like I think, and I tend to be an outlier in the sense, uh, especially in regard to my generation, because I sort of not enjoy being triggered, but I see it as an opportunity. And I recognize that like safety is sort of imperative, but also if you're never challenged or pushed, how do you learn things? Um, but even I feel like I was like infected a little bit by feeling as if like our parents should be perfect and that anything outside of that is somehow, you know, horrific and in, yeah, yeah. Uh, trauma. It's yeah, trauma. It's trauma. And that's terrible. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious if like, you know, in seeing clients who are especially younger, do you feel like sometimes they're grappling with that? This like, especially the mothers themselves, like this feeling of needing to be incredibly perfect and like never traumatizing That's their child. so interesting. It's really interesting. You know, I don't know that I have anyone who's kind of of your generation who's a mm. mother yet in my practice, yeah. but I know what you're talking about. And I wonder if that will really uh, sort of affect them. Yeah. Um, how old are you? I'm 33. Right. So I'm more or less old enough to be your mother. <laughs> so um, my own kids are quite a bit younger than you though. Um, and I, and you're so, you're raising something that, that is so, I think, remarkable and important and important to talk about, 
which is something that um, the Jungian analyst James Hillman refers to as the parental fallacy. Hmm. He calls it the parental fallacy, which is this idea that if there's anything wrong with us, it's because our parents fucked up somehow. Yeah. And he challenges that in his book, The Soul's Code, in this really kind of compelling way. And of course, it's not, you know, there's truth in the quote unquote parental fallacy, right? Yeah. I mean, it, how adverse childhood experiences tend to adversely affect us. And there can be sort of capital T trauma, you know, with parents who, um, you know, are, are terribly abusive. Yeah. And, and then there can just be um, families that are just kind of train wrecks, you know, without without any kind of specific trauma. I mean, there's incredible concept creep around the term trauma. But I do see young people. Um, I'm just trying to figure out if I feel comfortable telling a certain story. Uh, OK, I think I'll tell it. Okay. I'm going to tell a story. Um, I do see young people kind of thinking that if things aren't sort of done perfectly, that does that mean my parent is abusive? And I actually think that that doesn't really do us any good because it encourages us all to be a little more fragile than we really need to be. Right. Um, you know, the truth is that they, they, there was some, I think it was, I think it was just a book. I don't think it was a formal research study, but somebody looked at say, I don't know, the 200 most illustrious accomplished people, or they came up with a list of people who'd done these amazing things. And they looked at what they all had in common. And the, 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 the single factor that most of them had in common was they had lost a parent in childhood. And so there's this notion of adverse childhood experiences, and those definitely affect us and can wreak havoc in a life. There's no question. But what we don't talk about as often is post-traumatic growth syndrome. And some of the most kind of traumatized with capital T people that I've worked with, and what what I mean by they they face like all of the major childhood stressors, you know, abuse, addiction, you know, parents, um, uh, abandonment, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Sometimes those are the people who are, um, the most resilient, the most successful, um, the, the, the living the fullest lives, Versus, you know, um, someone who maybe had a parent who, um, you know, maybe their parents had a terrible divorce and, and their parents were kind of absent, you know, but they're really, really, really struggling. And it's sort of, you look at that and you think, what, what's going on there? And the truth is it's mysterious. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say, well, you know, if you really want your kid to do well, you should, um, you know, knock off your spouse or something yeah. like that, you know, or, or, or beat them. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no question that we, we ought to try to be, um, you know, warm, supportive, uh, um, you know, all those good things that we want to be as parents, um, that, that certainly should be what we strive for. But this, this, this idea that there's a sort of formula and that if we do it right, our children will be happy and they will be successful and they will have no problems. That I agree with Hillman. That's a fallacy. Yeah. 
Um, so I don't know if I, if I answered your question, but I, well, you asked a really interesting question, which is women your age having children, do they feel almost sort of an extraordinary need to be perfect because they grew up with this idea that any difficulty or challenge that they have in adulthood is because their parents didn't do it right. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like all things nuanced. I remember, uh, I had a really wonderful therapist who I sort of got great advice from my dad about, which was to go into therapy and actually like have an intentional purpose of why you were there. I'd been to so mm-hmm. many therapists in the past and I feel like this time I was like really ready to do it. Um, and so uh-huh. I really encouraged her to like call me out and promised to take it to heart and not kind of use her as a means to defend my, you know, bullshit or whatever. Um, uh-huh. and I remember I was there like three times a week for a very long time, uh, for almost mm-hmm. a full year. And, I remember this was the, op- the the point at which I was kind of discovering all of these things about my childhood that, you know, maybe I had some memory of, but hadn't really put the pieces together, hadn't really understood how it affected me. And so I was starting yeah. to uncover this and it was pretty overwhelming to kind of hear about it, um, understandably. And I remember her asking me something about like, okay, so how do you feel now having this information and knowing these facts about your childhood? And I said something like, well, you know, if it, if those experiences didn't happen to me, I wouldn't be who I am today. <laughs> and she said, well, you're right. But also like one, you don't know who you could have been, let's say, if you didn't yes. have the experiences. And also mm-hmm. let's make sure that that recognition isn't, um, preventing you actually grieving what occurred and feeling yes. into what occurred. Um, and I, I think that's something that we hear too, or I hear among my generation is people that look at their mother's lives or their mother's lives. And they think like, oh yeah, big T trauma, you know, sexual abuse or like poverty or this and that. And we look at our lives and think generally speaking, like we had it pretty good, or at least we had it better. Um, and so there's this like interesting kind of middle ground, I feel like that needs to be walked, which is that Yes, I think in many ways we do have more opportunities and maybe I sort of describe it as like the trauma was reduced enough and the opportunity was like raised enough to allow us to process it. And so denying it is mm-hmm. not necessarily beneficial, but to kind of like. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Not, you know, and I actually, I mean, this is such an interesting topic because I mean, most people come into therapy and that's kind of where you start, you know, right. it's like you're, you know, someone's first, all right. So tell me about your parents, you know, I mean, eventually we get there Yeah. and, and usually there's a, a lot to talk about there. Uh, even, even in situations where it wasn't kind of big T trauma, although plenty of times there is, but, but eventually, um, to really live a whole full life, um, you, you finish that piece to an extent. And of Mm. course you never really finish, but your relationship with it changes. Right. And it doesn't feel like it's the only thing that drives you all the time. It's right. just sort of, a, it, I don't want to say it's just, but it's a piece of your story. But you're also so much more. Right. And and I think that um, denying it is uh, absolutely not healthy. 
I also think that getting really stuck in a blame place and not not moving from there, that's an, yeah. actually another way that you can avoid grieving. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I agree. And I think it actually plays into what we were talking about before about like grounding into, you know, the Saturnian reality of our lives that at some point we have to take responsibility to move forward regardless of what happened to us, you know, like, that's right. Yes. That's right. You know, figure it out, process it, grieve it, deal with it, go to therapy. But then ultimately, I mean, this is, I think an issue with my generation as well, that we get stuck in this, I'm the victim and I'm blaming someone else place. Um, and ultimately it's not empowering and doesn't teach us about our own autonomy or, um, or strength. And I mean, I think like, are all of these or not all of them i'm i'm exaggerating but so much of these kind of like identitarian movements i feel like are based in that problem that we've we've identified with rightfully so the anger um but we kind of get stuck there and uh we don't move forward yeah yeah yeah. Well, I mean there's there's so much to talk about here and I I I mean first of all yes more pronounced in your generation. Well, yeah, probably, but it's also just so human mm. to kind of be in that, um, in, in that, in that, to kind of claim that victim place. And there, there can yeah. be, it can be important at times to do that. It's mm. just sort of like, is, is that the, is that the only place? And you said something so important, really it's the whole thing, right? It's just taking responsibility for ourselves. And, you know, that's, in some sense under undergirds the whole book. It's like, well, here you are and you need to take responsibility for yourself, you know, as you do this incredibly difficult thing called parenting and you're going to screw it up sometimes and you're going to be miserable sometimes. And, uh, but you have to, you have to take it on and, and that requires self-acceptance. And so I think that's sort of the bedrock message of the book is, Hey, Accept yourself in this, even if it's really messy. But mm. apropos of what you're talking about, I want to read this incredible quote from Jung. Mm. He says, is it okay if I read a quote from Jung? Always, yes. Okay. <laughs> he says, but no, no matter how much parents and grandparents may have sinned against the child, the man who is really adult will accept these sins as his own condition, which has to be reckoned with. Mm. Only a fool is interested in other people's guilt since he cannot alter it. The wise man learns only from his own guilt. He will ask himself, who am I that all this should happen to me? To find the answer to this fateful question, he will look into his own heart. Wow. Yeah. So I think that that's, (laughs) yeah, you know, uh, saying something pretty profound and it goes along with, of course, what you were talking about, which is mourning, mourning, grieving, what was done to us, what we experienced, acknowledging it, speaking it, um, feeling all the feelings around it. So not, not extracting those parts at all. Yeah. Just at the, at the end, there has to be a sort of, and, and guess what? At the end of the day, I'm going to take responsibility for myself. Right. Right. Yes. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about intuition. 
um, because I find mm-hmm. that this is something that all of us, but especially women, have not learned. And I think it's a great tragedy because I actually think like in- intuition is one of like the great <laughs> feminine powers. Um, and yet yeah. since we were children, you know, I always use the example of like, you know, we are not hungry and we're told to eat anyway and we're not tired and we're told to sleep anyway. And um, regardless of whether we're, you know, uh, a boy or a girl, like these things start very early and I think become extremely detrimental as we get older because we have no idea who we are outside of who other people want us to be or what the culture expects of us. And um, you spoke in several points of your book about intuitive knowing um Mm -hmm. and even upon being told you were wrong or being disagreed with you still sort of felt like you kind of knew what was best for your children um and you also spoke this spoke about this just in the idea to have children period um and I know it's a very broad question um but people ask it to me all the time too like are there some tools where if someone's struggling with like, is this my intuition or is this pressure or anxiety or something I feel like I need to do, especially in the, you know, decision to have children? Like, do I intuitively feel like this is the right choice or is this just sort of what I feel like is expected of me or where I'm supposed to be Mm -hmm. going? Um, Mm -hmm. And how might we begin to like unpack the difference between pressure and anxiety and actual intuitive knowledge. Well, uh, let me, Easy let question. me take up the, the issue of, um, of sort of anxiety mm. versus intuition because yeah. that one's a little easier. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's easier cause I thought about it more because mm. it's, it's true. Like some, some what will happen it. Cause I, I am an intuitive person and I have had at times in my life, um, just sudden knowings, not, not often, but just yeah. really just kind of knowing things and, um, you know, and that, and that's, that's quite remarkable when that happens. But, but sometimes, uh, it used to happen that I would get, I would board a plane and then I would be like, well, what if the plane falls from the sky? Maybe I should get off. Yeah. And then I'd go, Oh my God, was that an intuition? Should I get my bag and get off the plane right now? <laughs> oh my God, was that an, an intuition or was that an anxiety? Oh my God, what do I do? Yeah. And I, I never got off the plane and I'm still here. Yeah. Um, but, but that, you know, sort of made me think like, how do, how do you tell? And the, the, what I can say is if you're asking yourself whether it's anxiety or it's intuition, it's anxiety mm. because when an, intu- when an intuition really hits, you know, it anxieties mm. tend to make you anxious and intuition, even if it's an intuition of something really frightening happen, usually it's just more of like a dead calm this is going to happen. You might, you might feel like apprehensive or like you're, you're getting ready to take action kind of in a quiet way. But intuition is always kind of, there's always a sort of calm to it in a way. And, and, and in that flash of knowing, of knowing something, you, you just know it. You're not, you're not wondering about it. You just know it. Right. Um, and so I think, I think you can sort of trust it. Now, the thing about intuitions is, um, they usually are not specific enough that they're really actionable. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, well, is that, is that totally true? I mean, I'm thinking of certain times in my life when I knew something bad was going to happen, but I had no idea what it was. Right. 
it didn't help me prevent the terrible thing from happening, but to this day, I believe that it prepared me sort of psychologically to take action when the thing did happen. Right. And then I talk about in my book, probably in some ways, the most remarkable experience of intuition I've ever had, which is that I, I knew my son was being poisoned and mm -hmm. I was, and I was sure enough about it to kind of keep on trying to address it. Now I didn't address it as, um, as kind of, uh, quickly and seriously as I wish I had, but I addressed it quickly enough that I may have saved his life. Yeah. So, um, and if you haven't read the book, my son was an infant, we moved into a new house and I kept on worrying that he was going to get lead poisoning. And it, it was, it just would not let go of me. And I, I, I literally just sort of felt like the house was poisonous. And, um, I'm going to tell you most people around me thought I was nuts, Yeah, but I didn't stop. And I kept on taking, I, I, I don't want to sound like I kept on taking him in, but I, I requested extra, um, blood level tests mm -hmm. beyond the ones normally recommended by my pediatrician. Uh. And at one of those, his lead level was, God, you know, it's amazing because I can't, I, it's like, I'm, I'm almost forgotten, but I think it was something like 42, right? Yeah. which is insane. There's no safe blood lead level. You should have zero, but 10, when yeah. my kids were little, used to be the threshold <laughs> of concern. And his was, was either in the thirties or the forties. It was, it was really high. Yeah. And, um, if I hadn't had that test, if I hadn't requested that test, I'm not sure what would have happened. Yeah. So, um, that, that one was actionable and it did not leave me alone. And, uh, it just kind of kept at me. So there's that <laughs> now in terms of how can you tell if it's something rising up from within or if it's being imposed externally? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that requires getting quiet with yourself. And the other thing I will say though, is that, um, you're not looking for certainty. Hmm. Cause if you're looking for certainty, you're not going to find it. So if you're wondering, should I get married? Should I go to graduate school? Should I have children? You're listening for something that's going to speak quietly and it's not going to be a flash of lightning and you're not going to feel like, yes, yes, I've got to do this. You're going to feel ambivalent yeah. and the ambivalence is normal, but you might just feel a small, quiet push in one direction or another. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I also, I've found, you know, I was always a very sort of like sick child and had a lot of digestive issues and hormonal issues. I mean, I think this is relatively common and developed. And also my, my mother was, uh, very into natural holistic medicine and we had like a suitcase full of homeopathy and I sort of grew up with this, you know, distrust of let's say conventional medicine. And it was interesting as I got older because I feel like 
I had so much fear and anxiety about so many different things and like a horrible experience with birth control and all of these things that were actually true and real. Um, and not that I want to get into this topic now, but I think a lot of us are making these decisions around like what is right for my body and like what feels good for me. And, um, it was helpful for me also to, to think back, like, where did my opinions about this stem from obviously Mm -hmm. right and that goes into your getting quiet thing like you know it it makes sense to me that like I have a friend who was raised by a mother who was very into like very intense conspiracy theories and actually created Mm -hmm. a lot of like really well-known movies about these and he always kind of thought she was nuts and really decided in his life that he was going to separate from anything like that And so he's got this very intense, like, emotional um, resistance to anything that has anything to, like, that has any, that's uh, anything but, like, hard concrete science. Um, Wow. And it's interesting to kind of watch him be so reactive about it, and it makes sense, but also it's like, like, I try to do this thing with the scales. Like, if I'm very much tipped in this department, Right. I need to recognize that and maybe kind of compensate on the other side. Um, like I think our, our childhoods and upbringings and our parents play a huge role in, you know. That, that is, that's such a sad story in a way because yeah. what, what happened was, um, his mother, let's say, had a kind of, um, a twisted relationship with the unconscious. Mm which then has made it difficult for him to access the unconscious. Mm. And and I see that with people that were brought up in very sort of strict religious households also. Totally. They'll, they'll yeah. often come back and say, oh, I want nothing to do with religion at all or any of that. And, right. you know, I, I can respect that, but I almost feel like, well, your, your channel to access the transcendent has gotten kind of blocked mm. because you had this problematic experience of it. Yeah. Yes. The, um, sorry. You know, hard science, good conspiracies, bad, right. but there's some stuff in between there that might be interesting and nourishing. Right. Yeah. The, those raised in sort of fundamentalist religions or upbringings. I also am using that example. Like, of course you would be resistant to these things, but let's at least just become conscious of that resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of transcendence, I also want to talk a bit about uh, your writing about how having children can kind of be a pathway toward becoming spiritual. And Mm -hmm. I had this very interesting experience recently. Um, I did psilocybin basically for the first time. I I hadn't really Mm. been interested in psychedelics and I did it in a pretty controlled environment, but did quite a bit. And Mm -hmm. I had the most sort of profound realization that w- so much of what I had been struggling with as an infant and uh, like a very young person before I had words was that I was like going through a a deep spiritual crisis of sorts and mm. that I like came from this beautiful magical numinous place where everything was beautiful and sort of perfect in a way. And then I came into this world where like everyone was screaming and yelling at each other and I couldn't save them. Mm. And yet I didn't know why I was here. And it was sort of fascinating, Mm. a fascinating lens through which to, and you kind of talk about this in a different way, that there's some kind of um, magical, mysterious quality of babies and sort of where they came from. And um, 
I know, of course, I'm speaking about it from the baby's perspective, I mm-hmm. guess. But mm-hmm. but what does that mm-hmm. look like to kind of recognize the like innocence and beauty and miraculousness of of a child and inviting you into a place of sort of deeper meaning and um, finding one's sort of spot in a, a magical world? Well, I mean, it's not an accident that pretty much every cosmology has a sort of sacred infant in it, Mm. you know, that, that there, there are stories about the birth, the miraculous birth of Buddha. Of course, there's the stories of the Christ child. I mentioned the story about, um, the toddler Krishna, but Krishna also has a kind of magical birth story. You Mm. know, I think it's, um, again, really, really common. And, and Jung writes beautifully about this, you know, the child archetype, it's a, it's a numinous image of futurity, of future Mm. potential of, um, of the future coming into being. Um, and, and we, we recognize that I think in, in newborns, I remember, um, when my second child was born, there was, there was a like a lactation consultant who visited me when I was postpartum on the on the unit, mm. and and I can't remember exactly what she said. Now it was a long time ago, <laughs> but she like picked up my newborn son and was like, "Oh, I love this job," you know, and I yeah. got it. I so <laughs> understood which like why she wanted to spend all of her time around newborn babies right. because they are magical. Yeah. It's like they really have just crossed over from the other side. And then in Whitman's words, you know, sort of trailing clouds of glory. It's like yeah. you you can just, you, you do, you kind of get the sense that they've just come over from the other side and they've still got this, I don't know, magic pixie dust on them or something. I mean, it's really, you know, pretty, newborns are pretty amazing. Yeah. Um. So, so I, I think that, that we, Many women experience childbirth as incredibly numinous. Those of us who don't experience that way, for some of us, it's like deeply, profoundly disappointing, or we might even mm. consider it traumatic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess my own birth, I thought it was numinous too. I just had a C-section, but it was a numinous C-section. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but, and then I think that we, we do as we spend time with our children. And I, I talk about this as sort of like, oscillating back and forth between the totally mundane and ordinary. And then this just sort of like mind blowing reality. It changes your relationship with time to be with children. Cause you, you sort of, it's like, there's that phrase, um, the years fly, but the minutes drag. Mm. And that is exactly, exactly right. You're like, Oh my God, how did she get to be 15? Like, how did that happen? Right. But at the same time, like when they're little, you're like, Oh my God. It's, it's going to be like two hours until lunchtime. What do I do for two hours? How am I going to get through the next two hours? Like yeah. without killing someone, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's wild. Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of wild, but it, it, I mean, I think it just puts you in touch with something that's there anyway, but you just feel it more acutely sometimes as you're mothering. Right. Yeah. And also I think it's sort of, I think I had this, my dad, I've had him on the podcast as well. And we've spoken a lot about his parenting style. And he, I think this was also much the case for hunter gatherer societies, but there, 
that infants and children were not considered adults in the same way or treated exactly in the same way, but that their sort of questions were not seen as silly or ridiculous or redundant and that that the adults were learning from the children's curiosity sort of just as much as the children were learning from the adults. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that must be a part of it too, that if we can kind of see our children as possessing you know, something that we lost along the way or, mm-hmm, um, definitely. I mean, of course we're, we're learning from our kids in a myriad of ways, but this idea of kind of possessing something that's sort of less, uh, you know, untouched by the culture or by society mm-hmm. is, can be incredibly meaningful and illuminating. Yes, yeah. very much, very much so. Well, they see the world with fresh eyes. Right. So, yeah. So, I want to talk a bit about this because I feel like it was really profound for me um, in my decision about whether or not to have kids. And I was Mm -hmm. previously married for a good portion of my 20s. And I'm a pretty unconventional person and yet didn't really find a path forward in that and, and decided to follow a conventional path sort of with my unexplored codependency and wanting to fit in and belong and, you know, have a Mm. valid role in society and get married and have kids. Um, and I, I don't feel that I was under that much pressure from even my family and society. So I can imagine that someone who is like, it's interesting because I don't, I fell victim to that sort of mentality that this is what I needed to do without even feeling ultra pressured in it. It just felt so right. Okay. That's what we do. Um, and I sort of made the decision to get divorced and it was right before my ex-husband and I were planning on potentially trying to have children and I wasn't mm-hmm. conscious of it at the time, but I wonder if there was something in me that was like, mm-hmm. no, like no. either not, not right. ever or definitely not now, not with this person, right. not in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sort of overcome by some kind of like ruthless self-protection. Mm. And there was something kind of both very relieving in recognizing that at, I wasn't doing that imminently, um, having right. children that is, but also quite depressing in the sense that I really love children and I always, I like hanging out with children. I feel very childlike myself. I often at parties will go hang out with the kids so that I don't have to talk to the adults. Um, (laughs) and it was fascinating because, uh, a friend of mine in the very early days of my podcast, I sort of had the listeners pose questions to me to answer. And she posed a question, which was, do you want to be a mother? And in mm. hearing that version of the question versus do you mm. want to have kids, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. it made me think more broadly about what it meant to be a mother and to kind of embody the mother archetype. And so I mm-hmm. feel I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that because I actually feel like in my life, regardless of whether or not I actually have children, I feel, I mean, I feel very motherly toward my podcast audience and I have this Patreon community mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, if there are different ways to embody that archetype without actually birthing children. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, you're, we're talking about being generative Yeah. and you can be creative and, uh, have, have creative offspring. You can, uh, mother in all kinds of ways, whether it's a, a person that you're 
kind of um, behaving in a motherly way towards, even though they're not your offspring, mm -hmm. or mothering a project or an idea or a community or all kinds of things. I, I think we all feel an urge to be generative, and there are many, many ways to fulfill that urge. Yeah. Yeah. Can you expand upon that a bit? This whole generative, creative piece, you also kind of uh, uh, bring in eroticism in a way, right? That there's this kind of shared archetype between birthing a child and all life comes from sex in a way. And it's this very kind of creative process. And I think, unfortunately, we've uh, forgotten that in, in a lot of ways. We, we don't necessarily see childbirth as this kind of like erotic creation. Um, just as we've kind of separated sex from spirituality and, uh, yeah, when you, to me, when I look at the world, I think like everything is kind of coming from that creative place. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's, unfortunate that we've kind of separated from, I guess, I don't know, the magic and beauty of that process. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, well, well, of course, you know, and you know, we have because of technology and, and medicine separated out sex and childbirth, which of course, you know, in, in many ways is a very, very good thing and an important uh, step forward. But in, in psychologically, I think you're kind of onto something, whether or not we're talking about creating a child or even just kind of a, you know, let's say a creative uh, endeavor. Let's say you want to write, make an album, you know, that, that, that there has to be a sort of almost kind of uh, some kind of inner uh, fecundating process that allows us to do something like that. And it, and it is sort of erotic and it is kind of messy. And we often just want to think that those things can happen without that level of um, kind of getting down and getting dirty. But I think anytime we're really getting creative, we're, we're at that level, at least symbolically. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I feel like that's a beautiful place to end it. Although I have, I'm sure I could ask a million more questions, um, but thank you so much. This was really mm -hmm. lovely to chat with you. And I, I, I know you didn't know when you suggested it, but I appreciated the kind of push to read the book and think deeper into these things. It was yeah. um, a good experience and well, yeah, a very, thank you so much for taking the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I appreciate your, your thoughtfulness. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it was a, I, I don't remember the last time I read a book in a day. So that's saying something about its readability <laughs> and addictive quality okay. for sure. Okay. <laughs> um, Good. so yeah, I, I did this. I, it's interesting when I had all three of you on last time, I ask everyone at the end of the podcast to recommend a book. Um, and then I choose from those books. I have a book club for my Patreon and I choose from those books that the, the, um, podcast guests have recommended and we pick from those. Um, and it's interesting because I forget which one of you, but one of you recommended memories, dreams, reflections, and we're currently at this very moment reading oh, that. So wow. that was really amazing. Um, but I'm curious if you have any other books on this topic or otherwise that, um, aside from your own, of course, which I recommend, uh, -huh. uh that were, was really meaningful or, or useful to you in your own life and journey. Um, on, on motherhood in particular, not necessarily just, anything that comes okay. to mind. <laughs> Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
Let's see. Books that I just read. You want nonfiction or fiction Anything. or it doesn't matter? No, it doesn't matter. Anything. Mm. Have you read the Cormoran Strike books? No. By Robert Galbraith, no. a.k.a. J.K. Rowling? Oh, no. No, I Oh, haven't. my God. They're so <laughs> delicious. Yeah. They're so delicious. They're, it's, um, she has five of them. I think the sixth one is coming out sometime later this year. Mm. I think there's five. And they're, um, you know, they're detective stories. Mm. And, mm. and I, I just, they're, they were just like, I just, I don't know. I picked one up a few months ago to, um, so it's the first one is called Cuckoo's Calling. The second one is called the silkworm and like that, but it's, it's uh, okay. the Cormoran, yeah. Cormoran strike series, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Awesome. And, um, I don't know. She's just a really astute observer of human nature. Yeah. And, uh, so I really, I just enjoyed them greatly. So awesome. that's perfect. That's, that's yeah. I was, I was with. grateful that you included some of her story in your book as well. She has such a fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I did. Inspiring life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, where can people find mm-hmm. you and learn more about you or get in contact with you and get your book? Yes. Um, my, my author page is lisamarciano.com. The book is motherhood facing and finding yourself and it is available wherever books are sold, but you can, if you go to lisamarciano.com, I have a free, um, course that's kind of based on the book. It's different Mm -hmm. material that's in the book for the most part. Um, and it's just a, like an email kind of, um, little self-paced course, get three emails and, there's some additional materials there and some questions for reflection. You can also download, I think it's the, pr- the whole preface is on the website that you can download and read. And, um, and there are also links to purchase the book there. Uh, you can also visit the podcast at this Awesome. Um, well, thank you again, Lisa. This was awesome. And I'm really grateful for you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation with Lisa. I do highly recommend her book, whether you are a mother or a daughter um, of a person or just a mother or daughter of the world or of anything. Um, It was highly relatable and I absolutely was not a lie. I read it in a day. Um, It was very like edible. I just wanted to keep going. Um, so highly recommend that if you would like to read the writing that I'm releasing for free and join our community on Discord, get access to f- future book clubs, newsletters, updates, etc. You can do that at anyacots.substack.com. Enrollment is officially open for my Lunar Circle uh, and you can enroll uh, for that at anyacots.com slash lunar circle. If you have any questions about that or there's anything standing in the way or you need more of an extended payment plan than you see listed, please do not hesitate to reach out. As I mentioned, I'm not going to be teaching this course again, maybe at all, but if I do, it's not going to be for another year. So now's definitely the time if you've been thinking of taking it but haven't been able to the last few times that I've offered it. Um, I'm going to play you out with a song called One More Cup of Coffee, which um, when I heard this for the first time, I think she says, one more cup of coffee for the road until I head to the valley below. (laughs) Um, And uh, for some reason, I interpreted that as uh, the singer taking a journey into the underworld and grabbing a cup of coffee because it's freaking hard to stay awake down there and can feel oppressive and overwhelming. I don't really think that's what the song is about, but I liked thinking of it that way. 
and it's a great song. Uh, so it's called One More Cup of Coffee by Frazee Ford. And if you happen to be heading into the underworld or even, you know, heading out of it, maybe grab a cup of coffee. You're probably going to need it. Um, those times can be exhausting. They're so important and I think imperative to experiencing life in its sort of full expression and vitality. Sometimes we're very much out in the day doing sort of daytime, more masculine yang things. And sometimes uh, the season is nighttime and we need to be in a space of more yin and receptivity and femininity. And both are totally valid and totally needed. And I hope that in sort of taking uh, time for myself in my own yin uh, receptive underworld periods, um, that it helps to give you more permission and comfort to take full advantage of those periods of time in your life as well, because they are just important, even though our culture or society would like to tell us that they're not. Enjoy the song. Um, sending my love to all of you and catch you next time.